0: To Tales of Panem Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire. My pronouns are she/her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is at Tales of Panem on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for updates, episode information, and more. This week's episode will cover chapters six through ten of the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. However, before I get into the book, I do want to talk briefly about the trailer that came out a few weeks ago because I promised I would, and I do have thoughts about it. So let's just start with this I thought it was incredible I like I it wasn't that I wasn't expecting it to be good because I think that all the adaptations like all the film adaptations of the original books were pretty good you know I have I have some notes um I have some things that I disagree with that they did that I think could have been done better or whatever but like especially in terms of like book to movie adaptations because there have been some pretty bad ones um I think that we got very lucky with like the directors we had and the casting and everything like that um again with the casting there were some some issues um but you know like overall everything was pretty good and obviously like Francis Lawrence did a really good job with the films he directed um so I was I was glad to have him back as a director just general stuff like that but like still my I've tried to like keep my expectations like in check um which I was kind of unsuccessful at because as you've all heard on this podcast and probably seen on my social media I am going crazy about this book and movie all the time but you know I was like okay whatever it might not be exactly how I imagine it it might not be perfect whatever it was really good like I just and I like will definitely end up talking more about these things as we like as the actual film comes out and I start to do episodes on it but like just the like the aesthetic choices because obviously you know this is all in the future but they have to consider that like even from like the 10th Hunger Games to the 74th Hunger Games things are going to be changing in not just in terms of the politics but in terms of like the fashion the architecture because like that's what happens um in like the world and and throughout history and like in the future it will continue to happen even even in a dystopian society such as the one where this series takes place and so I really love the like stylistic choices you know and it very quickly like distinguishes time periods so like you know this is a different time period even if you didn't know that before you click play on the trailer it becomes very obvious almost immediately um and again like I said like you can see it in the fashion but it also extends to like the architecture and the technology and I think it's really cool because you can also like and again this is a longer conversation that I don't really have time for right now but like if you like look at some of the architectural designs you know some of the like aesthetic choices are pulled from like American history and like real world history and I think it's really cool that like because, like, history repeats itself, you know, that's a, and that's not just, like, a commentary on, like, politics and the state of the world, but it's also about, like, fashion and style and aesthetics and all those kinds of things. Um, In terms of the costumes all looked amazing, Trish Somerville, you've done it again um terms of like casting you know I think that like even as the casting was coming out I was pretty on board with the casting decisions that were being made you know maybe there was a few that I was like this isn't what I personally would have done but like whatever I'll wait I'll withhold judgment until I see the trailer and I'm so glad I did because I was extremely happy with like the way that these actors are inhabiting their characters um I mean obviously there's some that like I've been on the Viola Davis train since day one she's literally my favorite actress like of all time. Um so obviously I was excited about her being in this film. She looks incredible. Um same thing with like Tom Blight the Snow. I think I mean we only saw Sejanus for like one second in this trailer, which like ugh, tragedy to me personally. Um although I did scream, I think I mentioned this on the last episode, but if you go on my TikTok account at Tales of Panem, you can see my re- live reactions to the trailer in which I almost fell out of my chair when Sejanus was in it for like one second. And I said, I've said this also that like, I, it's not that like, I was like, oh my God, Josh is like a horrible choice for Sejanus. It's just that I'm not personally very familiar with like how he acts, you know, like, and and like his work So I was like I don't know I'll wait and see and I know it's like a one second clip and it's hard to judge from just that but like I feel like he is he gets it like he is the way that he's portraying Sejanus lines up with the way that I envision him after reading the book which is very good and I'm very excited to see more from him. I think Rachel's Lucy Gray looks amazing. Her rainbow dress at the reaping I was really nervous about because I was like this dress could either look really good or really like like can't be in a bad way, you know, it's because the way it's described in the book, like it was. I would always try to envision it, and I, there's like a lot of different ways you could see it, but I think that it looks so good. Like, I saw it and I got so excited because I was like, oh, I should, like, I never should have even thought to doubt Trish Somerville because she has never let me down in the past. Um, but yeah, that dress looks amazing. Viola Davis's outfits are so good, oh my gosh, she is everything. Who else do I need to talk about? Peter Dinklage as Dean Highbottom. I did say before he got cast that I was like literally like any middle-aged man could play Highbottom and it would be fine. But after watching that trailer, I'm like, no, actually, he is perfect for this role. Like, I so get it. Um, Jason Schwartzman, it's great. Like, I remember like see, when he first got cast, seeing like side by side pictures of him and Stanley Tucci, and I was like, wow. I really see it but even more so after seeing him in the trailer in like his costume and makeup and everything like he he he, they look like relative like distant or like he looks like his ancestor I guess is what I'm trying to say um I feel like I have so much more to say but I don't want to spend forever talking about this the arena looks so cool um the fact that they put actually no I'm not supposed to talk about spoilers yet some of the choices for scenes in the trailer I was like they're crazy for putting that in the trailer like the scene of snow shooting his gun at the trees is already crazy but when you know the context i was like and the scene right before that in the trailer i know is right after redacted redacted um i'm communicating telepathically with those who have already read the book so you know what i'm talking about it's the scene right before the scene of him shooting in the trailer i know what is happening in that scene so anyway that the trailer was incredible so excited for the film. Um, but right now we are talking about the book, chapters six through ten, which is the rest of part one. Um and uh as usual I'm gonna start off with my little recap. When Coriolanus returns home from the zoo, the grandmam expresses her disapproval of his spending so much time with Lucy Gray, but Tigris supports it. The next day at school, the class has a discussion on how to increase viewership of the Hunger Games. Coriolanus suggests the idea of allowing viewers to bet on tributes, and it gets everyone thinking. The mentors are given 15 minutes to meet with their tributes to fill out forms with their personal information. While most are relatively unsuccessful, Coriolanus fills his out completely and even opens up to Lucy Gray about his own life. Dr. Gall debriefs the mentors and supports Coriolanus' idea of betting on the tributes, asking the class to write a proposal. Coriolanus, Clemencia, and Arachne are chosen to write it. Some of the mentors return to the zoo to visit with and or provide food to their tributes. Arachne taunts her tribute Brandy with some food and Brandy slits her throat. Coriolanus comes to her aid and Brandy is shot by peacekeepers. Clemencia says she is too upset to finish writing the proposal and Coriolanus agrees, but he then writes it on his own. When they go to present the proposal to Dr. Gall, they lie and say they wrote it together. However, she has placed the pages in her tank of snakes and when Clemencia reaches in to retrieve them, the snakes attack her as they are not familiar with her scent. At Arachne's funeral, Coriolanus is asked to sing the anthem, and Brandy's body is displayed for all to see. The mentors and tributes are then taken on a tour of the arena, but as they are being shown around, bombs start to go off. Some tributes make a run for it, but Lucy Gray stays back and saves Coriolanus. He is then hospitalized for his injuries. While in the hospital, Clemencia sneaks into his room and tells him that no one has come to visit her. She shows him that scales are starting to grow from her skin before the doctors drag her away. At the next meeting with the tributes, Coriolanus thanks Lucy Gray for saving his life, realizing that he now owes her. She tells him that she can start to make it up to him by believing that she could actually win the games. That was a long recap, and I definitely left out a lot of things because a lot is happening and there's a lot of smaller events, but I'm just trying to hit the big moments specifically relevant to what I actually want to talk about. I talked about this a lot, not a lot, a decent amount last episode, or I guess two episodes ago when we talked about chapters one through five of like how snow views the people from the districts and now more specifically how he views lucy gray and there's this one line at the very beginning that really stuck out to me which is when sejanus is still trying to convince snow that they should like trade tributes um and snow says dumping her would be like kicking a kitten the amount of times that the district tributes and like district children are compared to animals in this book. I literally can't even keep track anymore because it happens constantly because that's literally how the capital views them and like viewing them as equals is a radical viewpoint or even like viewing them as humans is almost radical like when sejanus is like shouldn't it be the role of the capital and this government to protect all of its people not just those who live in the capital that is considered like A rebel viewpoint because like how could the people in the districts possibly be equal to them that is what everyone thinks and sejanus is able to see the flaws in thinking that way um which is what makes him a unique person in the capital and also an interesting character um and it extends to like his view of the hunger games where he's like why when they're like how do we get more people to watch this and she's like and he's like why would people want to watch this and that's when he's like shouldn't we be like protecting these kids why like what is even the point of all this which like I'm not even gonna lie the first time I read this every time he opened his mouth I was like I love you but like shh like keep that to yourself bro like you're gonna get in so much trouble for saying that um because I do think and this is something I'll talk about more once I do like I will do a Sejanus episode and also as we get later on some people in the original books refer to Peter like P- I'm talking about like readers interpretations of his character as like being naive and like okay sure there are some moments where you could say that about him like he is a fully like a 16 year old so like of course he's gonna be a little naive at times but I wouldn't describe him that way. Sejanus so Plinth however I would describe as naive and I'm not saying like in a bad way like he's also very young and just like he it's 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 this interesting thing of like there is kind of a fine line between like optimism and naivety and he is like really walking it (laughs) but there are times when he falls towards being more naive because he like you know he believes that things could be better which is like a really important quality and like trait to have and I think that having hope is also very important but there are times when I'm like if you Like, this is not the right way to go about this. Or, like, you could be doing more if you thought a little harder about it. And again, this is not like me trying to say bad things about him because I love him so much. Um, But I do think that he can be very naive at times. And I think that's a really important aspect of his character um, and something that I wanted to bring up because I don't often see it being talked about. And I also do see people talking about PETA being naive a lot. And I think that it's PETA's not and Sejanus is. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts about, like, the comparing the characters from, like, Ballad to the original trilogy, and, like, some of the comparisons, I'm like, yeah, but some of them I disagree with, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Um, I also do, like, Sejanus is, he's also very interesting in the relationship that he has with his father, because obviously his father was the one who, like, got rich and and moved them to the capital, and he has a really strained relationship with his father and he is in feels like in many ways he is like the disappointment in the family or like that he is a disappointment to his father because his father like did all this to get them to the capital and so Janus spends all his time like one often like wishing he was back in the districts or like he doesn't like being in the capital and also like actively speaking up about how like the capital people are no better than anyone else which is like the exact opposite of what his father is trying to like get him to believe you know um but he just never like buys into that whole like capital like superiority thing um which I think is very admirable of him and I think that like I said he's a really great character obviously I love him so much um and so it's it's very interesting that they have like that sort of strained relationship um and that we'll get more into later as his father like becomes more of a character um and as Sejanus starts to get a bigger role in the story But it does get like briefly addressed in this scene. This scene, this whole scene where they're like having the debate on like the viewership of the games is so fascinating to me because while I know that this is like a room of 18 year olds, some of the stuff they're saying, I'm like, oh, how do you not see the problem with that? Like, it's so, it's so jarring to me because like they're like, they're like, they're like the equivalent of like seniors in high school, you know? And I'm like, I could not imagine having, like, thought that way even at 18. Like, it's it's really deeply concerning. And you know it's because, like, their parents believe these things and it's been, like, basically, like, programmed into them since birth to, like, think that they're better than everyone else because they're from the capital. And to think that, like, all district people are, like, horrible monsters. And it's just, like, this is... And then, like, you, it get, obviously gets like, even worse over time because we see it in like the 74th games, because this has now been like multiple generations, like being fed this information, and everyone like believes it so wholeheartedly. Um, but yeah, that whole scene, just like, oh my gosh, it's so. And the way that Snow's like, oh, why don't we just like bet on the tributes? Haha, and everyone like laughs, and they're like, oh no, wait, this is a good idea. I'm like, these are people's lives. Like, I know that it's like, okay, it's the Hunger Games, yeah, obviously, but like. These are literally children's lives that you're suggesting that people bet money on who will survive. I and like the, the this being like the origin of that kind of thing cuz I like you know it's messed up when you're reading the original books and you're like, "Oh my god, people are literally like paying money to bet on their favorite tributes and like acting like fans of these like kids who are literally being sent to die." And now we see like the origin of that and that a lot of it went back to Snow's ideas which is just so like he's not the one who started the hunger games but he very much makes it into what it is when we see it in the future um and also you know we're going to get more into the lore of like who created the hunger games and why but that's that's for later um but yeah he is very much like turning it into something else just through his like ideas about the games which is very fascinating to me um And he's also the one to be like, what if we could send food to tributes in the arena? Like, you could send food to the tributes that you're sort of betting on and sponsoring. And that's, like, obviously sponsorships like, a huge thing as we see it in the future. Um, And so the fact that all of those ideas came from Snow, who ends up being the president and, like, keeping this going for years and years and years. And that's, like... Jumping ahead, when he has this conversation with Lucy Gray, where he's like, she's like, You didn't start the Hunger Games. And he's like, Yeah, but I'm actively participating in them. Maybe I should like drop out, clear my own conscience. And she's like, No, you're the best chance I have of winning. But like, that's the thing, though. Like, the all the people that are actively participating in the Hunger Games. Like, it's not even in like the future, it's not just snow. It's like the game makers, the sponsors, all the people that are like Participating it of their own free will, I should say, because obviously, like the tributes don't have a choice, the mentors don't have a choice, like that kind of thing. But like those, all those people are complicit in the deaths of these children because they're all like helping to make it happen. Um, and like we're literally seeing like these eighteen-year-olds being made to mentor other kids to go fight to the death so that they can get a good grade. And, like, no one sees a problem with that except for, like, Sejanus Plinth, who is, like, I don't want to do this. I love, oh my gosh, back to Sejanus for a second, the scene where they're talking to Dr. Gall and she's, like, well, you know, you were very lucky to be chosen for this opportunity. And he's, like, okay, well then give it to someone else then. And Snow, even Snow is, like, I kind of respect him for that because, like, you have to be bold to like throw a mentorship back in dr gall's face and i just and like again part of this goes back to i was talking about like him being naive whatever but also you know he really like you have to admire how much he's willing to stand up for what he believes in even though at times you're like hey maybe you should be quiet because you're gonna like get yourself into a lot of trouble and maybe you can do more good if you like shut up now and like actually start to make a difference um but, but you know, he doesn't know the best way to go about it just because, like, how, why would he? And so I do think that, like, it is very admirable how he's willing to say those things to, like, people who could make his life miserable for saying those things. Because those are considered, like, traitorous things to say, you know? Because, like, everyone in the capital is supposed to be fully committed to the capital, blah, 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 like, that kind of thing. And so the fact that he's willing to openly be like, no, actually... I don't agree with this. And I think this is very terrible. You have to like respect him for that. And I just love that scene so much. Love him. Let's talk about Lucy Gray talks about uh, like her, her past during like her childhood. Um, And she's a part of this traveling musical group called the Covey, which I think is super, super interesting, especially in a series where music is so important and so key to the story and so to have her like music is her whole life it's not only it's the like it's the way that she survives and the way that like hunting is the way Katniss survives I've been thinking every single day I saw this person on Twitter being like Katniss is what you get when you put a hunter in a performance and Lucy Gray is what you get when you put a performer in a hunt and like that changed my life that changed my life like I I literally have thought about it every day since I saw it um because it's so real and so true and like this this games in particular the 10th hunger games is about how do we turn this into a performance into and it that line in the trailer or that line they put the line in the trailer where high bottom is like your job is to turn these children into spectacles and that's why they're doing like the interviews and stuff and snow is like oh lucy gray you should like sing in her, your interview and she's like why would i do that it's not going to help me at all because this is before like the sponsorships are a thing and like the idea of like sending food and stuff in the arena so it literally only benefits snow if she's saying in that interview because like it's not going to help her win and similarly like coming up with the idea of sponsors is like just going to benefit him you know like it's always about what's going to benefit him at the end of the day he cares about himself more than anything and anyone else and that's just like who his character is like music is so important to her life. It's the way that she has stayed alive is through performing and, and making money through that. And also like he asks her like what like what side of the war the Covey was on, and she was like we were not involved at all, um, which is very interesting because like she is technically District Twelve, yes, but like she doesn't really consider herself to be District. She like they considered themselves to be like independent of that. But it, she also doesn't have that weird like superiority to the people of the districts, like the people of the capital have. It's just that she considers herself part of the cubby first and foremost. But yeah, the whole point of this game is to like turn these children into a spectacle, into and turn the whole thing into a performance. Um, because like people don't want to watch a hunt, they want to watch a show, and that's what they're trying to make this into through everything that they're doing. Um, that's why the mentorship program was even started was because they were like, how do we get people, how do we get people to actually want to watch this thing? Cause like, no one wants to watch it. Wow. Who could have guessed? Um, but yeah. And the problem though, is that like they, Snow brings up the circus a lot in this book, which I think is so, such a great, like, I don't know what the word is, but like a great tool to use, I guess. For Suzanne Collins, when she was writing this, because like they're basically trying to turn these children into like circus performers, but they view them more as like the animals, you know, like they, like I was talking about, they have most of the people in the Capitol don't even view the district children as human, which is why they're like so willing to turn a blind eye to all the horrible things that are being done to them. Cause they're like, they're like a, um, we're a superior like group of people. And oh, and that's where um, we get people like arachne who is like teasing brandy with some food and then gets her throat slit and then they throw this like big funeral for her and they're like oh she's such a hero like she died and it was so tragic and terrible and whatever and it's like okay yes you know it is tragic that an 18 year old died even though it was because she was being an idiot um but like she was also and that's something you have to keep in mind is like these these they're still basically kids. Like, I guess they're technically 18. They're technically adul- adults. But they are still very young. And that's, what, like, some of them are the same age as their tributes. But, like, she was literally taunting her with it. Like, she was, like, an animal in a cage. Which they are very much not. They're very much people. But it all just plays into this idea that the people of the capital have. That everyone in the districts is, like, monsters and savages. and And, like, bloodthirsty killers. Which is obviously not true at all. Especially because we've had three other books that are entirely from the perspective of someone from the districts and surrounded by other people from the districts. We know that is not true, but the Capitol is really pushing that idea, especially so close to the end of the war where like there's, there are still like acts of rebellion happening out there that they're trying to like snuff out. And so like, that's what like the bombing of the arena and stuff like that. And so that's like the whole like disp- displaying Brandy's body She's like so messed up because she is a young child. Um, I'm just gonna leave that one there because it's really like and it happens again later too. And I'm just like, oh, this is like I feel sick to my stomach reading stuff like that. And the people of the Capitol are like calling for more of that. Like they want to see the district people punished because like. The war made their lives harder too and i'm not saying that no one like people in the capital did genuinely suffer during the war but like let's think about and also like we're taking it out on the children who like first of all the ones that even were alive during the war were like five or six years old and also just like they're totally innocent in all of this so like why is displaying a young girl's body going to help in any way and why should that be something that the people of the capital want to see and it's because like the children are easy to punish and it's an easy way of keeping the districts in line of like threatening people's children because like no one wants anything to happen to their children obviously um but you know it is still like none of them actually had anything to do with the war so like why are they the ones being punished for it and i'm not saying like oh we should start like publicly displaying adults bodies no, we shouldn't be doing that, period. But, like, the children shouldn't be feeling any of the consequences of this because they're the ones that should be protected. And that's, again, Sejanus's whole point is, like, we should be protecting our children and protecting our youth, not killing them. (laughs) Again, should not be a radical viewpoint, but actually is in this world, which is how you see how messed up things are. Especially when you're getting it from the perspective of the capital, where everyone around him disagrees with him. Versus, like, in the original books, everyone surrounding Katniss agrees with her on those things, with few exceptions of, like, when she's in the capital for the games. But, like, in this book, it's the complete opposite of that, where, like, pretty much everyone is, is totally bought into the capital propaganda, except for a few people, and those people are the outliers. And it's such an interesting, like, contrast and a dynamic to the original books. Let's talk about, oh my god, let's talk about... Dr. Gall and her snakes and Clemencia and I have so many thoughts about this guys you know I think this might be the week where I get into my my Clemencia dovecote theory because I think that we have all the information necessary but first of all let's talk about Dr. Gall's laboratory scary scary place um a lot of interesting stuff in there most noteworthy there are like avox mutts basically like humans that have like animal parts and like have been experimented on and tested on and snow realizes that they're all avoxes and like this is you know like mutations have been a thing even like during the war like jabber jays or a mutation that like that was created artificially by the capital are not like a naturally occurring animal but they're always trying to come up with more scarier whatever um I mean, as we can see from the original books, like there are some really scary mutts. But yeah, as he's walking through her lab, he sees all these like crazy experiments that she's been working on. But a lot of them are like our are Avoxes, who are obviously like people that have been accused of treason, whatever, who've had their tongues cut out so they can no longer speak, and now are being experimented on and turned into like weird mutations, AKA mutations. Um, And i just i have so many thoughts about mutations in general but let's talk about clemencia because clemencia gets bit by these snakes which first of all that scene was crazy it's one of my favorite scenes in the book sorry clemencia i love you so much sorry that one of my favorite scenes is the one in which you get like brutally attacked but it's a really good scene and it's also like the first scene like it's dr gall's real like oh i'm really evil moment (laughs) because Clemencia's is getting like dragged away, and it's like, is she gonna die? And Dr. Gall's like, eh. But but seriously, Snow, if you lie to me again, like it's over. But like, who cares about Clemencia, right? Which is just like, (laughs) imagine your literal professor like causing you to be bitten by a venomous snake and then being like, eh, if she dies, she dies. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I will be dropping out of school. Um, But basically, like, there is just clemency, okay, let's just let's just get into the theory. So I have a theory um about how the practice of hijacking came into existence in terms of like we know that hijacking is like a known thing that the capital does when they do it to PETA because like Plutarch is able to pull like research on it and stuff. but there's not a lot of documentation of like how this practice started. If it's ever been like successfully done before, stuff like that. So let's look at Miss Clemencia Dovecoat. She gets bit by the snake, venomous snake, and she starts growing like scales on her basically. Um, which, okay, super side note. I'm so excited to see how she looks during this scene in the movie, like when she shows up in Snow's hospital room oh, the, like, makeup and, like, FX and everything is gonna go crazy. She's gonna look so cool. Anyway, that was my little side note. Um, But basically, she starts, like, growing scales and essentially, like, turning into a mutt, like, into one of the creatures. That's what, like, Snow is, like, is Clemencia gonna become one of those creatures from Dr. Gall's lab? And it's, like, mm, a, little, a little bit. um, But also... Clemencia, one of the first things that we learn about her character, like when she when they're in class and Snow is kind of like doing his thing where he like introduces people. Um, and so we get to kind of learn about his classmates through his eyes. For Clemencia, he's like she we know that she is very well liked because she is very nice. And obviously, you know, <laughs> she's gonna be a little hostile towards him. When she comes into his hospital room, because one, she is freaking out, and she's completely alone, and two, there are scales growing on her body, and three, this is like low key his fault. Like it, it's it's Dr. Gall's fault, but also like he's the one who wrote the report alone after their classmate literally died. After they were like, we're not going to write this report. So you know, she has every right to be pissed at him. I so would be too if I were her. But just think you know, you're Dr. Gall and Clemencia gets put by these snakes and like, she's still like researching these snakes. So we don't know like if anyone else has been bitten in the past or like what, like what, how far along in the research sort of process that she is. And so you see Clemencia Dovecoat, this nice girl, start to kind of transform into a mutt and also she is more hostile, she's more aggressive, she's not like the nice quiet, not quiet, she was pretty talkative, but nice friendly girl that she was before. And there's another scene later on where it's a little more of that too. And you start thinking and you're like, hmm, I wonder what other applications we could come up with for this Venom. Oh, and also we created these mutts called tracker jackers, which are highly venomous wasps. Hmm, I wonder if the venom that is in these snakes is a similar or modified version of the venom that is in tracker jackers. Just a thought. And so then you're thinking like, hmm, how, what are the other applications for this kind of technology? Technology, quote unquote, I don't, can't think of a better word for it. Maybe as a form of torture. Because also, Clemencia, Snow hears her like screaming from her hospital room. Like she's clearly in a lot of pain. Just like when you get stung by a tracker jacker, it's extremely painful. And so, I'm not saying that what happened to Clemencia and Gaul's research with the snakes regarding that incident is eventually developed into what we know is hijacking and what happens to Peter Malark. But also, I so am saying that. And I, Absolutely think that's what happened. Um, I'm doing a really bad job of explaining this. I think I made a TikTok about it before that was better. But anyway, my point is that maybe they saw what happened to Clemencio and they were like, hmm, how else could we use this this venom and this like basically torture method? And then they came up with the idea for hijacking. And then and also, like, Snow could have worked closely with Gall on that because he was the only other person to witness that event and to witness like what clemency had become because of it and also they do end up working closely together in the future as we that we know like from this novel so just some thoughts just some thoughts um but yeah that's my one that's my really theory that I go crazy about in this book and that I believe in more than anything else um ever so think on that Anyway. Let's change the subject completely and talk about Lucy Gray-Baird. I love her. She, she's just so, like, she wants to see the best in everyone, which I love a character like that, especially when they're surrounded by people who are kind of terrible, which she is. Like, literally the person she interacts with the most in this novel is Coriolanus Snow, and she tries so hard to see the good in him. Which, like, there is good in him, you know? Like, even though he is a very evil person, and, like, even at this point in time, before he's, like, done all of his really evil stuff that he does in the future, he's still, you know, he's not the greatest. He has extremely flawed ways of thinking. His, like, outlook on the world is very questionable. Um, He thinks he's better than everyone else. He's extremely selfish, etc. I could go on but she really wants to see the good in him. And that is why they end up like developing the relationship that they do is because she tries to see that and she tries to believe that he's a good person and she will continue to believe that up until she literally cannot anymore. And so, um, you know, when they have these like meetings and these conversations, she's like, I know you're doing what's best. Or like, I know you're trying your best. I know that you're just trying to do what's right. Even though like a lot of the time, he's really not. He's really just trying to do what is going to benefit him and get bring him power and status and protect his reputation. Like, everything he does is just such a calculated decision of, like, how is this going to make me look? Rather than, like, is this the right and good thing to do? And how will this affect others? It's always just about him and how it's going to benefit him. And so when you have two characters like that, one character who we know to be extremely evil... And one character who just wants to believe that there is goodness in everyone. That is going to be an extremely interesting dynamic. And it is. And it's why the two of their characters, like, work so well together. um, Like, narrative-wise. Like, how they play off each other in the way that they are written. I think it's just, like, really good character decisions. But um, she, you know after the bombing she could have made a run for it but she chooses to stay partially because like she probably would have just been killed if she tried to run anyway but also you know she saves Coriolanus's life but this creates like a shift in there in this sort of like power dynamic that he has like created for them in his head of like he's the mentor he has the power she's the tribute she has no power and it's not that she has more power now but she has like not leverage, but he knows and she knows that he owes her his life. And so, and he's like, I want to try to make it up to you, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, hey, maybe you could start by thinking thinking that I could actually win. Because we know he doesn't believe that she can win. And it's not even about when he, like, he he's he literally openly acknowledges, he's like, I don't need her to win. I just need her to be popular enough and do well enough that it makes me look good because like she's the district 12 girl no one expects her to win but by like getting her as far as he can it's already impressive to others like it's impressive in terms of like what it means for him and so like she um she know she's not an idiot you know she's actually extremely extremely smart And she knows that he doesn't really take her seriously. He doesn't actually believe she has a chance of winning. He just wants her to like get up and sing and perform and make him look good. And she's like, hey, bestie, like if you want to be a good mentor and if you really want to like properly repay me for saving you, like please believe in me and like actually try to help me win and don't just do it for yourself, do it for me. Will this be like an actual wake-up call to him or will he continue to be terrible? Uh spoiler alert, the original trilogy exists. So um, it's it's not gonna end up great for him. <laughs> He's definitely gonna be evil. Yep. Yeah, sorry to spoil um the hungry, <laughs> but snow is evil. Shocking, shocking twist. But there is definitely like a shift here in their dynamic, and he doesn't like it because he likes to be the one in control he likes to be the one in power the idea of owing someone from the districts even someone that he thinks he cares about it's not good for him and so there is definitely like a noticeable shift here that will keep up throughout the rest of the book in terms of like how they interact with each other and how he feels towards her and how he thinks about her and he also has these like sort of developing feelings for her but it's also like it's just always so selfish with him and especially in a series where like the main relationship we have in the original books is Katniss Everdeen and Peter Mellark. Peter Mellark famously like people talk about how selflessly he loved her like that is a huge part of their dynamic so now we see the total opposite of that of someone who loves so selfishly and I it's like a perfect like what's the word for when it's a mirror but like they're opposites Guys, it's like one in the morning right now, so I'm- my brain can't think of the word that I need, but you get what I'm saying. Like, they parallel each other in the sense that they are opposites. <laughs> Whatever. Point being, he wishes he was Peter Mallark. No, he doesn't, actually, but he should, because Peter Mallark is a perfect man. No, that's not the point. The point is just that, like, he loves her so selfishly, and it's never- like that that is never going to be a healthy model for a relationship ever because relationships like not to breathe the cliche like relationship is about sacrifice blah 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 um but like is it is it really like real love if it's only about you if that makes any sense um I feel like I'm just rambling right now but I do have a lot of thoughts about like Snow and Lucy Gray and the people that were like oh I was so rooting for them or like they were really cute at the beginning and I'm like okay I'm gonna have to disagree on this one (laughs) because again it's all the like weirdly like possessive comments he makes about her and it's not just one time it's like many many times and it's throughout the novel and he's like gets so jealous like we'll get to that later on my god but um it's really like not healthy behavior at all and you shouldn't want her to be in a relationship with someone like that because she deserves so much better and I just love her so much but she really wants to believe that he is good and I think that is that is definitely a strength like it's not a weakness to want to see good in people and to believe in people and like to want people to be good however like not everyone is going to be is the thing and unfortunately sometimes people have to learn that the hard way but yeah, they are um, definitely getting closer and he does at times like find himself opening up to her because like they do have things in common in terms of like their upbringings and like the losses they have experienced, but it's never enough for him to care more about her than he does about himself. <laughs> so it's never really, it's never going to work out. Either. Thanks for joining me this week on Tales of Penance. For those of you reading along with me, next week's episode will be covering chapters 11 through 15 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email, which is talesofpanem at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or rating of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week. (laughs)